The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Do all roads lead back to Russia? This is Thursday, September 28th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. If he must tweet, and apparently he must, Donald Trump could have spent the weekend tweeting about the pending vote on health care or the growing threat from North Korea or the human suffering of millions of Americans in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Instead, the president tweeted nearly two dozen times about NFL players who chose to protest racial inequality by kneeling instead of standing for the national anthem. If Trump wanted to distract us from our very real problems or his very real problems in the Russia investigation, this was the perfect topic for an unnecessary debate. Trump's assault on those players, calling for their firings and calling them sons of bitches for exercising their right to free speech, was a dog whistle for conservatives and liberals. Most of us bit the bait, engaging in a discussion that not only solves no problems, but further divides us as a nation, as if we needed that. To further stoke this unnecessary fire, the same Russian bots that tried to sway the election last fall continued this week with fake accounts to inflame the already overheated national anthem debate started by Trump. The president and the rest of us have bigger fish to fry, and the skillet is hot. Just before Thanksgiving last year, President Obama was in Lima, Peru for a meeting of world leaders, and Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg was there, too. It was shortly after the election of Trump, and Obama and his people were surprised by that election result, and then concerned they hadn't done more to battle the Russian-planted fake news that pushed Trump over the top. Just before Thanksgiving last year, Obama ran into Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg at a world leaders meeting in Lima and took the Facebook founder aside for a chat, a warning about the fake news he'd been publishing. Publicly, nine days before that, Zuckerberg dismissed as crazy the notion his creation had been used to tip an election. He admitted there was some fake news but didn't believe it to be widespread. But it was in June, long before that sidebar with Obama, and five months before the election, that Facebook first recognized a pattern of Russian ad buys. We now know this thanks to reporters at the Washington Post who found that Facebook, in fact, contacted the FBI twice to warn it that the Russians were up to something. So the FBI heard about this also months before the election. And Facebook continued to accept the rubles and say publicly this was no big deal. We now know Zuckerberg was wrong about that. Facebook has now turned thousands of Russian-planted fake news articles aimed at polarizing public opinion over to investigators. What Facebook didn't realize back then is that this very perceptive exploitation of America's political divide was being targeted to key voting districts. It does now, as do we all. And we now know Obama was right about that Russian interference and he had taken Zuckerberg aside to warn him about it that it would only get worse in the next elections in 2018 and 2020. There were fake accounts from Russians posting on Twitter as well. Today, Twitter representatives are meeting with investigators from the Senate Intelligence Committee to talk about that. Like Facebook, Twitter has also agreed to testify publicly, but today's meeting takes place behind closed doors. Under Twitter's different format, however, it was easier for Russian bots to blend in 
and less reliant on who you know, as is more the case with Facebook. And Twitter's hashtags made it easier to spread the fake news to more people. Russian accounts tweeted the hashtag War Against Democrats more than 1,700 times on just Election Day. Twitter has promised to be more aggressive at curtailing fake robot accounts, and it's promised to cooperate with those investigators. Hillary's emails is a phrase we heard a lot in the final days of last year's presidential race. In the end, on Election Day, it was partly Clinton's use of a private server for government business that tipped the vote. For the Trump campaign and its supporters, and even for many Sanders supporters, it was all about Hillary's emails. This week, we learned that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has been using a private email account to communicate with other administration officials. His lawyer says it was fewer than 100 emails and that none of them were about government business. There is, however, evidence to the contrary, including two emails with the small business chief over policy, as an example. On Monday of this week, the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee launched a new investigation. Maryland Democrat Elijah Cummings shot off a letter to Trump and Kushner asking them to preserve all emails from the Trump family's private email domain. Monday evening, we learned a half-dozen members of the Trump White House had also used private email domains for government business. Ivanka Trump did it for a while, so did Steve Bannon, so did Reince Priebus and Stephen Miller. And by Tuesday morning, the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee also signed that letter to the president and Kushner, asking that those emails be preserved for investigation. Trey Gowdy led the charge in Congress to repeatedly investigate Hillary Clinton and to think it all started with Clinton's use of a private server. She calls revelations Team Trump did the same the height of hypocrisy. She has the right to say that after Trump harped on Hillary's emails and basked in his supporters' chance of lock her up. White House officials are legally banned from using a private email account for official government business. It's the law. It's a violation of the Presidential Records Act, and it opens the White House to cyber attacks as well as criminal charges. Some of the president's lawyers have advised Jared Kushner to step down from his role as White House advisor to protect his father-in-law from scrutiny in the Russia probe, although it may be too late for that now. What do former FBI Director James Comey and former White House spokesman Sean Spicer have in common? Besides no longer holding those jobs, they are also both prolific note-takers. When Spicer worked at the Republican National Committee, his colleagues say he took such copious notes they joked with him about writing one of those tell-all books. Spicer's colleagues say he filled entire notebooks in black binders that bore the seal of the Republican Party. Spicer reportedly told his colleagues the notes just helped him do his job. Quoting one, Sean documented everything. And that apparently continued during his West Wing gig, which is very unusual since past administrations have known from the investigations they faced that documenting everything is not a good idea from a legal defense standpoint. Spicer, who's trying to reshape his image for his new career, whatever it may be, has absolutely no comment and made it clear to one reporter he doesn't even want to be asked about his note-taking at the White House. But the Washington Post reported earlier this month that special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigators want to interview Spicer, as well as a handful of other past and present Trump advisors. One White House source says there are people in the Trump administration who will, if Spicer's notes get out, wish they had been nicer to Sean. Spicer has to answer questions about his notes now. 
Special Counsel Robert Mueller will no doubt want to see them as he interviews Spicer about Spicer's statements on the firing of James Comey. All of that is why Sean Spicer has now lawyered up. He is just the latest past or present Trump White House official to get an attorney to help them navigate Mueller's Russia investigation. Communications Director Hope Hicks and Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner have lawyered up as well, along with Vice President Mike Pence. None of them appears to be wealthy enough to pay what will be millions of dollars in legal bills. Unlike Trump and Trump Jr., they are not getting money from the Republican Party or the Trump campaign to cover those expenses. At some point, they might find that grossly unfair. All of this happens as the Russia investigation closes in on the Trump White House, and the news of Spicer documenting everything comes at an interesting time, just as Mueller had asked the White House for documents relating to all kinds of things Trump has done since becoming president. The investigation appears to be no longer about just the election, but some of the dramatic things Trump has done as president. Mueller's asked for documents on more than a dozen topics, including statements made by Spicer, as Spicer was taking what we now know are detailed notes on everything. Mueller's also asking for documents on fired National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, fired FBI Director James Comey, campaign manager Paul Manafort, and others, and anything having to do with Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner. Mueller also wants to see documents on Carter Page, Trump's foreign policy advisor during the campaign, while Page was also, at the same time, under U.S. surveillance for being an agent for a foreign government. Mueller wants to know about that meeting Trump had with top Russian officials in the Oval Office in which Trump spilled state secrets and bragged that firing Comey relieved great pressure on him. Mueller's investigators want to see documents relating to the meeting Donald Trump Jr. had with Russian operatives in Trump Tower last June. And Mueller wants the people and documents related to the statement that Trump wrote on Air Force One outlining a false reason for his son's meeting with the Russians, another possible obstruction of justice. Between interviewing past and present White House officials and gathering documents relating to things that have happened since Inauguration Day, the Russia investigation is closing in on the White House. The man who may know the most about any co-conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia is Trump's longtime friend and political strategist Roger Stone. And he isn't talking, except to deny that there was any connection. Stone showed up to testify for a closed-door meeting by the staff of the House Intelligence Committee this week. Vowing to tell the truth, but refusing to answer key questions, Stone told the committee there's not a shred of evidence he colluded with Russia to help Trump get elected. There might be a shred. Last August, Stone predicted in a tweet that Clinton campaign manager Paul Podesta would be the next to have his Russian-hacked emails published. And three days later, it happened. Stone had bragged back then about his meetings with WikiLeaks chief Julian Assange, who published the stolen emails from both the DNC and Clinton's campaign manager. And Stone was not the only one making predictions back then. In a campaign speech on June 9th, the same day Don Jr. met with Russians in Trump Tower to get dirt on Clinton, Don Sr. promised he would have new dirt on Clinton, probably the following Monday, June 13th. For whatever reason, candidate Trump never delivered on that promise. Homeland Security has finally told 21 states their voter information was targeted by Russian hackers 10 months after the election that occurred during a Russian attack on our political process. 
Some of those state election officials already knew this. Wisconsin says the hackers scanned its internet-connected election infrastructure looking for vulnerabilities to get into the voter registration databases. Many states hadn't checked or chose not to talk about it or didn't even know they were on the list because it had never been revealed. It wasn't until this past week we learned which states were threatened. This was the first time the federal government had weighed in in a public way on Russia's assault on voter registration in nearly half our states. In states where the tech is handled by an election contractor, DHS says it had already notified them and advised them to shore up any vulnerabilities. Now, after state officials complained about the lack of information from the feds and how that was keeping them from fixing their own vulnerabilities— Homeland Security has finally contacted them on an individual basis. Now, many of these state officials had turned down help from Obama's Homeland Security Department because they were worried about interference from the U.S. government. They didn't count on interference from the Russian government. DHS and state officials, now that they've both seen the evidence of what happened, are getting along better now, sharing more information with one another. Besides Wisconsin, we know Washington State got hit by hackers along with California, Oregon, and Wisconsin. So did officials in Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Maryland, Minnesota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia, alphabetically. Many of those, as you just heard, are must-win states for a presidential candidate. There were no attempts to invade the voter registrations of Georgia, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, New Mexico, or North Carolina. But we also know Russia sent emails containing malicious software to as many as 122 election offices across the country. The Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services is now investigating the Trump appointee to run that cabinet-level department, The agency's inspector general is looking into Tom Price's use of a chartered jet on at least five trips at a cost of over $400,000. For months now, this is how Secretary Price has been getting around, on a twin-engine jet owned by a company called Ultimate Jet Charters. More than two dozen charter flights. He spent more than $56,000 just last week on air travel. At your expense. Federal law requires administration officials to take the most economical travel possible. Reporters at Politico say there were commercial planes and trains available when Price made a couple of trips two weeks ago. Quoting that Inspector General's office, We take this matter very seriously. Work is underway and will be completed as soon as possible. Tom Price now says he won't use private charters anymore, at least not during this Inspector General investigation. Price is the second Trump cabinet member to be investigated for unnecessarily extravagant travel behind Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who took his new wife to see the eclipse and Fort Knox on the taxpayer's dime. For what it's worth, the president now says he is not happy with Tom Price, and Trump says he too is looking into Price's extravagant travel. Will Price be fired? We'll see, says Trump. Trump has not made a similar statement about Scott Pruitt. Donald Trump's head of the EPA, meanwhile, is spending three times as much money as anyone else who's held that job when it comes to his personal security detail. Demanding it round the clock as he does, Scott Pruitt has brought in agents from around the country and more full-time positions have been created and filled for his security detail. 
Pruitt's been using this security since he took office in February, perhaps fearing environmentalists angry about what he and Trump have planned for the EPA and what they have already done. Hiring in the rest of the EPA is frozen, meanwhile. This has never happened with prior administrators, says a former special agent for the EPA's Criminal Investigation Division. That division is now understaffed by nearly a third, with Pruitt and the president looking to make even more cuts. Conveniently for Pruitt, the reassignment of agents has forced his criminal unit to close a number of pending cases against Pruitt. It's normal for a Secretary of State to have 24-7 security, same for the Secretaries of Defense, Treasury, and Homeland Security, and until Scott Pruitt, not EPA administrators. He's the most controversial EPA chief ever, and he's not the only anger-inducing member of Trump's cabinet. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is also getting 24-7 personal security at a cost to taxpayers of nearly a million dollars a month. If you hadn't noticed, Trump's appointments to key positions either contradict or ignore the qualifications for those specific jobs. Private school advocate DeVos now runs the public schools. An oil country politician who's repeatedly sued the EPA is now running the EPA. To this president, some jobs are not important enough for bold political statements like that. To run the agriculture department, Trump has chosen a candle maker, a long-haul trucker, and a cabana boy. American farming has never witnessed such leadership. Out of 42 resumes, 22 mentioned the applicant's work on the Trump campaign. Political appointments are normal. Putting completely unqualified people in charge of an industry they know nothing about is not. None of the Trump appointees in agriculture have experience with federal policy and have only vague connections to agriculture. Some of them don't have college degrees, which means they won't be able to make the same money as the person who held that job before them. The truck driver will handle the USDA's Foreign Agriculture Service, even though he knows little about finding new foreign markets for American meat and produce. In charge of the forests, as well as farms and cattle ranches, is a man who owns a landscaping company in a North Carolina town called Connolly Springs. But those guys worked on the Trump campaign, as did young Christopher O'Hagan, who majored in business at the University of Scranton and whose only listed work experience was cabana attendant at the Westchester Country Club in New York. The list of examples goes on while even agriculture remains understaffed under Trump. The inauguration of Donald Trump spent half as much money as Obama's had, but Trump's inaugural committee raised twice as much money to fund its festivities. Of the $107 million raised, the inaugural staff seems confused about how much money is left and what will happen to all that money that wasn't used for Trump's inauguration. The committee has promised that at least some of the extra cash would go to charity. So far, it hasn't. Not a dime An inauguration committee is not required to tell how much it's spent on what, and we're now hearing that the cost of the ceremonies was higher than the original $25 million estimate. But officials within that organization say money will still go to charity, with one official promising it'll be a bigger donation than from any inaugural committee before it. The rest, perhaps, could be used for legal defense for Trump administration officials who can't afford it. Chuck Rosenberg had heard just about enough from Donald Trump two months ago. It was when Trump spoke to law enforcement officers and encouraged them to rough up their suspects. 
Trump referred to, quote, thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon. Rough, please, said Trump to the officers. Don't be too nice. Having been in law enforcement his entire adult life, Chuck Rosenberg wrote a memo to the law enforcement officers who worked for him at the DEA. The memo reminded those officers the agency's core values are, quote, rule of law, respect and compassion, service, devotion, integrity, and accountability. But the memo went on. We have an obligation to speak out when something is wrong. Sources at the DEA say Rosenberg believes that Trump has virtually no respect for the law. Rosenberg is likely also unhappy about the firing of FBI Director James Comey, more evidence of Trump's disrespect for the law. Comey, you see, is Rosenberg's old boss. Rosenberg was Comey's chief of staff of the FBI until Comey was fired by Trump to impede the Russia investigation. And that, they say, is why Chuck Rosenberg is resigning tomorrow as acting head of the DEA as a protest against not only the practices and policies of Donald Trump, but against the man, Trump. After serving under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, Rosenberg is out of here tomorrow. A sideline story to be sure, but a story that says a lot. Crisis in Puerto Rico. What didn't happen to your health care? What's happening with North Korea? And what happened to the Republicans? Those plus Bob Seska after this. The onset of autumn is a great time to start bringing life and color into your home. It's time to embrace the season, and I'll bet you know someone who's in love with everything from fall colors to pumpkin spice. That's why it's a perfect time to go to proflowers.com and check out their best-selling cinnamon cider roses, a longer-lasting bouquet that's perfect for any occasion this fall. Or check out their 100 autumn blooms or even a dozen of their autumn roses. And if you choose any one of those items for $29 or more, ProFlowers will take 20% off the price just because you heard about it here. The fall bouquet they sent here is absolutely breathtaking. Remember, ProFlowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. ProFlowers gives you more bloom for your buck, big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code RELM at checkout. That's RELM, R-E-L-M, in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Sometimes, those of us who are reporters or anchors or commentators find ourselves in the odd position of reporting what didn't happen. In this case, it might have happened and might have adversely affected tens of millions of Americans, but it didn't. Republicans have failed again, as they have so many times before, to repeal Obamacare. The Graham-Cassidy bill was already in trouble as the details trickled out. 21 million would lose their health insurance because they could no longer afford it. Millions would be kicked off Medicaid. The plan involved replacing the Affordable Care Act with financial grants to the states. But an independent analysis showed that over six years, the latest Republican scheme would cut money to the states by $215 million. Cut money, making it tough for those states to provide low-cost health care to those who need low-cost health care. Over a 20-year stretch, the states would have lost $4 trillion. 34 of our 50 states would have lost funding, as would have Washington, D.C., California, and New York would have been hit the hardest. Texas would have come out a winner. 
The Congressional Budget Office couldn't get its report out on time for this last-ditch, last-minute attempt. As the lights began to dim on this new Republican plan, its sponsors sweetened the pot for a few states by offering something akin to a bribe. Republican senators who were shaky on supporting the latest plan were offered more money for their state's health care programs. In the end, that didn't work. In the end, Maine's Susan Collins and Arizona's John McCain said they could not in good conscience support this bill. Ted Cruz was wavering. Rand Paul was already a no vote. Indefatigable protesters from around the country appeared again to defend the health care they have. With Collins' announcement, she's out, even after her state was offered 43% more money. The Republicans lost another chance to ditch Obamacare as they had promised to do for so long. Without enough support, Mitch McConnell canceled the vote that was planned for yesterday. It was their last chance. Or was it? Republicans are now talking about tacking an Obamacare repeal onto their tax reform bill, which may be another fruitless exercise for the party supposedly in power. More about that later. Hundreds of American citizens are dying in Puerto Rico. There is no electricity, no drinking water, and no phone service. Electricity could be months away, years away, for parts of the island that's been set back two or three decades by Hurricane Maria. And it's not as though many of them can leave, although thousands are trying to catch sporadic flights to Miami and New York, cities already rich in Puerto Ricans. Planes can only land and take off by daylight without electricity, and many of the incoming planes are bringing disaster relief. The short-range radar is up now, but the long-range radar station got knocked out by the storm, and workmen will have to carve through two miles of trees and debris to get to it. Meanwhile, hundreds of people are waiting at the airport, having made reservations by phone and holding boarding passes that were written by hand. That, if they were among the lucky few to swelter in the heat of that airport and wait. Across the island, millions of U.S. citizens are facing grim circumstances. In hospitals and care homes, the dialysis machines won't run without power, and the oxygen tanks are going empty. The death toll will rise. Sixteen people are known dead, and flooding is still a concern. A property manager in San Juan told NBC News she feels like an island forgotten by the U.S. Quoting her, Nights are excruciating. There's screaming. There's gunshots. It's hot, so it's hard to sleep. I haven't slept in 48 hours, she said, adding that she has seen no police and no military. Puerto Ricans are begging for more federal help, much more, much faster. More like what we saw in Texas and Florida. House Speaker Paul Ryan called it a humanitarian crisis, vowing they need help and they are going to get our help. And then he added, as soon as he gets an aid request from the president. Donald Trump, after a weekend of tweeting about the NFL, appeared on Tuesday to say that his administration was doing, quote, a really good job of helping Puerto Rico. He promised to visit the disaster area on Tuesday. But he also picked this unusual time to scold the U.S. territory for its $72 billion debt crisis. It was a bit kick them while they're down for many people. We've gotten A-pluses on Texas and Florida, and we will also on Puerto Rico, bragged Trump at a news conference as if his grades were more important than helping desperate Americans. Then he instructed reporters, quote, it's a big ocean. It's a very big ocean, and we're doing a really good job. Rewind to Sunday when Hillary Clinton proposed sending in the Navy something she might have done had she been president. She isn't. 
But by Tuesday, a U.S. Navy ship was preparing to sail from Virginia to Puerto Rico. It's a relief and hospital ship known as the Comfort. It's loaded with supplies for which Puerto Rico is begging. And its order to launch came a full seven days after the hurricane had passed. It finally launches tomorrow, ten days after the storm. The Coast Guard has nine ships in the area. 4,000 Army Reserves have now been deployed. But the Homeland Security Department still hasn't waived the shipping restrictions that would get much-needed gasoline and other supplies to Puerto Rico. The Jones Act, which sets those restrictions, was suspended after Harvey hit Texas and Irma hit Florida. The Virgin Islands, which were also pummeled by Maria, have a permanent waiver for the Jones Act. But DHS says it hasn't issued a waiver for Puerto Rico because it hasn't received a request. DHS has now heard from Senator John McCain, who urged it to waive the act for Puerto Rico as soon as possible. The governor of Puerto Rico says he's expecting that waiver. And thousands of containers of food and water sit on the docks due to a lack of truck drivers to deliver it inland and a lack of cleared roads to get the relief supplies to the people who need them. Just this morning, President Trump waived the Jones Act for Puerto Rico. Finally. Meanwhile, the U.S. government's relief effort in Puerto Rico is described as chaotic, with FEMA employees milling about, doing nothing except waiting for supplies or instructions or both. Will Puerto Rico be Trump's Katrina, and will it matter to his supporters? Humanitarian aid is also still needed in Mexico after its 7.1 earthquake earlier this month, which killed 300 people in its destruction. And as the recovery effort continued, Mexico was hit by a 6.1 aftershock over the weekend. In Indonesia, over 120,000 people are fleeing an erupting volcano in Bali. On Monday, North Korea's foreign minister said Trump has declared war on his country and that the little nation will do what it must to defend itself. The foreign minister threatened to shoot down U.S. bombers in the area, even if they weren't in North Korea's airspace. We will see then, said the minister, who lasts longer. The foreign minister told the U.N. General Assembly that a North Korean strike on the U.S. mainland is, quote, inevitable. For what it's worth, the White House says the U.S. has not declared war on North Korea. With more on this and a commentary, here's Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. His completely irresponsible tweets and outbursts about North Korea have almost become a mundane daily feature. But there's nothing, absolutely nothing normal about the way President Trump is handling the worsening crisis between America and the Kim Jong-un regime in Pyongyang. In fact, we should be a lot more terrified by Trump's behavior than we are. Remember when Trump embarrassed himself and all Americans when he publicly blurted out that if North Korea conducts another missile test, they'll be, quote, met with fire and fury like the world has never seen, unquote. Not only did these remarks escalate tensions between Kim and the West, but of course the boy leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea called Trump's idiotic bluff. Ever since Trump threatened fire and fury, there have been three separate missile tests, one of which involved several missiles, and there have been two underground warhead detonations that we know of. No fire and or fury in response, of course. Trump walked right into this one. Now his words mean even less than they did before he popped off with his silly, ill-conceived threat, undermining American negotiating power and, even more importantly, America's reputation with its allies. And yet he keeps pushing forward with the same childish non-strategy better suited to a Scooby-Doo villain than an American commander-in-chief. Since early August, fire and fury has been replaced by 
Rocket Man. Trump's latest attempt to, I don't know, insult Kim Jong-un. It's unclear what advantage he's winning here. Is this nickname supposed to irritate Kim Jong-un? Or is it inadvertently empowering him? It seems like both, neither of which we should be necessarily doing. Not only does it hand the regime another excuse to demonize the United States as bullies threatening the might and sovereignty of North Korea, but it also makes us seem foolish and unserious, as if our entire strategy is ripped from Trump's Twitter addiction, another silly zinger for the gawking delight of Trump's brainwashed fanboys. The thing is, this is exactly what he's doing. He's jerking off his supporters while exacerbating the crisis. And so far, the White House has failed to offer a valid explanation for why this name-calling business has been deployed. But then, over the weekend, Trump's behavior worsened. As we were focused on the NFL, Trump slipped a North Korea tweet into the mix. The president tweeted, Just heard Foreign Minister of North Korea speak at UN. If he echoes thoughts of Little Rocket Man... They won't be around much longer. Yes, another empty poop tweet threat from Donald Trump. This time, he threatened the DPRK's foreign minister, suggesting that if Ri Yong-ho says anything similar to what Kim has said, North Korea won't be around much longer. In other words, Trump threatened to completely destroy Pyongyang, or worse, if Ri echoed Kim in his UN remarks. The problem with empty threats like this is that they inflame situations with exactly zero advantage for whoever's issuing the threats. Has Trump's tweet given the United States some sort of advantage? I mean, other than giving Trump's knee-jerk racist followers their first semi-erections in years at the thought of annihilating some gooks. Incidentally, it's worth noting that Trump voters will die just as painfully as Hillary voters if Kim decides to hit the U.S. mainland with an ICBM. So not only did Trump offer up another baseless threat escalating tensions between the U.S. and the DPRK, but Rhee decided to respond on Monday, and it wasn't good news. The Guardian reported, North Korea has threatened to shoot down U.S. bombers in international airspace, claiming that, with a weekend tweet, Donald Trump had declared war. The North Korean foreign minister, Rhee Yong-ho, said, quote, The whole world should clearly remember it was the U.S. who first declared war on our country, end quote. Well done, Biff. When or if an American bomber is shot down and personnel are killed, we should obviously blame the regime. But Trump should get partial credit for unnecessarily taunting Rhee and Kim to pull the trigger, and without any real strategic purpose behind the initial taunt. There's something to be said for projecting toughness, especially if there's a three-dimensional chess strategy in progress, maybe a good cop, bad cop gambit, at the very least. But so far, all we can do is to take Donald Trump's possibly dementia-induced tweets at face value as nothing more than a doddering old crank's ill-conceived attempts at intimidation. One of the many things that Trump doesn't grasp about all of this is that there's a specific reason why leaders much wiser and smarter and more experienced than Trump haven't resorted to Twitter threats. Threats, especially infantile ones, just don't work. Clearly no one, possibly including John Kelly, who's supposed to be babysitting Trump, agrees that Trump is doing the right thing. In a sane world, Trump's North Korea blurts would be enough to trigger impeachment or 25th Amendment discussions on the Hill. He's not a well man, and his mental instability could lead to countless deaths in the first full-scale nuclear exchange in the history of the world. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him at Salon.com every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. I'm proud to be one of the regular guests on that program.
As president, how do you implement the Muslim ban you promised your supporters without people calling it discrimination against Muslims? You throw in people from Venezuela and North Korea with the Muslims. Voila, no more focus on the Muslim thing. At least you think you've heard the last of that, you hope. At the very least, you don't expect that to ever again hang you up in court. But unlike the Trump administration's first two ham-handed attempts at a Muslim ban, this one might just stick. Because Trump's original orders have expired, the administration's out with a new set of bans and restrictions still mostly aimed at mostly Muslim countries. Although many questions remain about the details, this new travel ban did not roll out in chaos like the first, does not focus exclusively on Muslim-majority countries like the first two, and was developed after careful research into the targeted country's willingness to share traveler security information. The rules are different now for each country instead of being part of a sweeping ban. This policy was months in the making. Still, six of the seven countries on that list are majority Muslim countries. Were Trump's first and second Muslim bans unconstitutional? We may never know officially. The U.S. Supreme Court has canceled upcoming oral arguments on the federal court rulings that struck down those first two bans. Those travel bans, what survived of them, have expired, and the new ban is different. The court may render this case moot. Among the questions still unanswered, whether the new ban will achieve the administration's stated goal of preventing terrorist attacks when the vast majority of attacks here so far have been spawned by U.S. citizens. Lawsuits against the new ban, however, may not breeze through the courts as quickly or easily as they did with the first and second attempts at delivering Trump's promise to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. The Republican Party finally got the power it sought for years and years. Republicans thought they would finally get their way on issues important to them. With control of the House, the Senate, the White House, and even arguably the Supreme Court, Republicans haven't passed a single piece of significant legislation since getting that control. They couldn't even deliver on that seven-year promise to repeal Obamacare. All because a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. By the time they got hold of Washington, Republicans were themselves divided in multiple directions, but mostly divided between moderates and ultra-conservatives who bucked the party's moderate establishment leaders. Luther Strange, who was appointed to replace Jeff Sessions when Sessions became attorney general, lost in this week's Senate primary in Alabama. After having been endorsed by Donald Trump and the Republican Party, Strange became the first incumbent in five years to lose a primary election race. Winning instead was renegade Judge Roy Moore, who's twice been removed from the bench for ethics violations, but these days he's exactly what too many voters were hoping for. Moore is a gun-toting judge who's clashed repeatedly with the federal government over civil rights matters. He was the choice of Republican voters in Alabama. Voters chose the candidate who calls Native Americans reds, Asian Americans yellows, and Islam a false religion. They voted for a man who wants to make homosexuality illegal and who believes 9-11 was a punishment for a nation turning away from the Judeo-Christian God. But can Roy Moore win in a general election, being so far to the right of political center? If the Republican Party has only extreme conservatives running, can it win any future election? And this further divides Congress between statesmen and conservative revolutionists. The Republican Party is changing and not in a way that will help it win. 
Now other Republicans are looking at losing their seats. Arizona's Jeff Flake, Nevada's Dean Heller, and Mississippi's Roger Wicker, all facing possible defeat in their re-election efforts. Statesman John McCain is battling brain cancer and says the prognosis is not good. He says he's cherishing the time he has left, and so should we. Tennessee Senator Bob Corker, one of the most prominent faces among Republican lawmakers, says he's getting out. He says anything longer than two terms is too career politician for his tastes. So the party as we know it is also losing Bob Corker. The Democrats who've worked with him say they will miss him. Republican retirements are popping up in the House as well. Say a grand farewell to the grand old party. Say goodbye to the Republicans we once knew. And by the way, a similar thing is happening in the Democratic Party. Moderates facing tough challenges from more progressive candidates who are less likely to strike any deals with the Republican Party, which has become more conservative. Gridlock is about to get much worse. California, the state displaying the greatest resistance to Trump, is now suing him over his plans to build a wall along the border with Mexico. California's attorney general says the wall would violate numerous state and federal laws and that it's unconstitutional. He says Homeland Security would have to waive more than 30 federal laws just for starters. It overrides several California laws to protect the environment. The border spans some 2,000 miles, says California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, adding, the list of laws violated by the president's order is almost as long. No one, he says, gets to ignore laws, not even the president. Construction has begun, though, on the prototypes of the wall in a competition to meet Trump's requirement that it be a beautiful wall. Contractors from coast to coast are making bids and building these prototypes, including some that oblige Trump's musings about a see-through wall. That, said Trump, would alert Americans they're about to be hit in the head with a tossed-over bag of drugs. The wall will never happen, despite it being a cornerstone of Trump's campaign and a popular chant for his supporters. Of the nearly 300 Republicans in Congress, only 69 of them support providing the money to even start building the wall. In Long Beach, California, meanwhile, just south of Los Angeles, Latino students have been the targets of violent threats and Jewish students have been intimidated by Hitler posters captioned, Finish what we started. Members of La Raza were told they would be shot. University police declared it a terrorist threat and have brought in the FBI to investigate the source of the posters and threats. Pope Francis has just launched a two-year campaign to embrace and protect migrants. The idea is to connect immigrants with citizens who might be able to help them. The church's program is called Share the Journey. Donald Trump, meanwhile, has a new immigration rule capping the number of refugees the U.S. takes in at 45,000, the lowest number since 1980. Police cannot track your movements through your cell phone without a warrant. So says a federal appeals court, which calls that practice a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which bans unreasonable search and seizure. Police in Washington, D.C. had used a cell tower simulator known as the Stingray, to track a suspect and use that tracking as evidence against him. No more, says the court. And the consequences of that ruling are widespread. 72 law enforcement agencies across the country have been using the Stingray in over two dozen states. Each Stingray costs a half million dollars. Taxpayers spent $95 million to buy those hundreds of Stingrays that, without a warrant, are useless when a case goes to court. 
and the ACLU is going to court to get police to stop another practice called kettling. That's when police surround an area of street protest and arrest everyone within that perimeter, including reporters, lawyers, and other people who were on their way somewhere and had nothing to do with the protest. St. Louis police surrounded and arrested 100 people in a downtown intersection in the recent demonstration against another police officer being acquitted after killing another black man. St. Louis police had used the kettling technique after a day of peaceful protest that became violent in spots that night. But the kettling that puts everyone into the system, despite their innocence, has to stop, says the ACLU. Women will soon be able to drive cars in Saudi Arabia. Women drivers have been banned for as long as anyone can remember there, and that will change starting next June. In 10 months from now, women over 30 can apply for licenses with a few restrictions. The country's religious leaders have long argued that women driving cars would lead to an increase in pornography and casual sex. They even argued that driving might harm a woman's reproductive system. Women staged occasional protests against the policy over the years and passed round petitions for the past decade. The Saudi government's also been under increasing pressure from around the world for this and its other human rights violations. Critics say letting women drive is just window dressing to get the world off Saudi Arabia's back while it continues even more serious human rights violations. Sex news, trapped in a cave, and the futures in weed in the third and final segment, up next. I am so very grateful for the support that you've shown for this free independent news and comment by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. Trump hates Amazon. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, and bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just that first time, helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shopped through my link, again, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. A big shout-out to Scott for making a monthly donation through PayPal. Exploiting the libidos of men and the beauty of nude women... Army veteran Hugh Hefner established an empire that helped launch what seemed at the time like a sexual revolution. As the years passed, he would also champion women's rights, civil rights, and the rights of gays. He dedicated page after page to some of our greatest living writers. He advocated for free speech and published groundbreaking interviews. Hugh Hefner has now died of natural causes at the age of 91. His Playboy magazine was born in 1953 with a nude photo of Marilyn Monroe. The empire faded in recent years, unable to compete with widespread free pornography online. The revolution left Playboy magazine and its two dozen nightclubs in the dust. And Hefner had an answer for the critics who called him sexist, a sexist who objectified women. I think you ought to talk to the women who've been in the magazine and see how they feel about that, he said. What is more Puritan, he asked than someone who has a strong opinion about somebody else's life and who disapproves of it because it's not their particular way. 
The smaller empire he leaves behind remembered him in a tweet this morning with another half quote, Life is too short to be living somebody else's dream. Anthony Weiner could have gone to prison for 10 years for sending pornography to a 15-year-old girl and for getting her to undress for him on Skype and Snapchat. The 53-year-old former congressman had sent her a series of lewd texts. In his final plea to the court, Weiner cried and begged to be spared prison. His lawyers argued he's made remarkable progress in therapy. But the prosecution said the case against Weiner is indisputable and the need to deter him is real. Instead of 10 years, the judge gave Weiner 21 months. He reports to prison one week from tomorrow. From our Thought You Ought to Know department, new cases of sexually transmitted diseases hit an all-time high last year. The annual report from the CDC shows syphilis up nearly 18%, up 36% in women, and up 28% in their newborn babies. Chlamydia is up by more than 1.5 million new cases. Gonorrhea numbers are also up. Quoting a CDC spokeswoman, all it takes is a simple STD test and antibiotic treatment to prevent this enormous heartache and help assure a healthy start for the next generation of Americans. That and condoms. The FDA, meanwhile, is going after hundreds of so-called online pharmacies that sell everything from Viagra-type drugs to the opioids at the heart of the nation's drug problem. The concern is that these black market prescription drugs are potential dangers, unapproved, counterfeit, contaminated, or expired, not to mention the risk of identity theft, credit card fraud, and computer viruses. And the FDA is especially concerned about the opioids and the antibiotics. The FDA has now sent warning letters to the people who run over 400 online pharmacies. A hundred of those sites have now also been confiscated. Target is raising its own minimum wage to 11 bucks an hour and promises it'll be 15 an hour by 2020. About a third of Target's workforce, 100,000 employees, will see the higher starting pay as Target hires for the holidays next month. Target's average pay is around 13.69 an hour. The federal minimum wage remains at 7.25 an hour. As predicted, the price of orange juice is skyrocketing after Hurricane Irma wiped out a lot of what would have been a bumper crop of Florida oranges. Over half the crops were destroyed by the storm. Some orange groves were completely destroyed. A gallon of OJ could go up by $2.30. That's not the price. That's the increase. It's up to Brazil now to cover us on the shortage of oranges. America's chain of Sonic drive-in restaurants is the latest victim of a data breach. More correctly, millions of Sonic customers who use their credit or debit cards there are the victims. Sonic noticed unusual activity last week involving credit cards used at their businesses. The company says it immediately engaged third-party forensic experts and law enforcement once it got word from the contractor that processes its credit card transactions. Sonic says it's also conducting its own internal investigation. There are currently 5 million credit cards up for sale on the part of the Internet known as the dark web. It appears that one other restaurant chain's customers were targeted. We have yet to hear from that company. Last year, Wendy's customers were the target of a breach after the credit processing at a 1,000 of its locations was compromised. Sonic has 3,600 locations in 45 states. The CEO of Equifax has announced his retirement less than a week after the company announced it had been the target of a cyber attack that exposed over 140 million people. 
He'll be busy anyway, testifying for the Senate Banking Committee next month to do some explaining. The company's information and security officers retired earlier this month. The Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission are investigating, looking especially at how long the company took to share what it knew about its data breach. Lucas is 19. He grew up in Bloomington, now a freshman at Indiana University, working in the school library, and he did not expect to be trapped in a cave. It happened when he went to Sullivan's Cave, which is normally locked shut with a gate to keep out amateurs, kids, and other troublemakers. But Lucas was okay. He joined the university's caving club, and this was his first outing with them. The expedition involved a dozen students split into two groups of six. The story gets fuzzy at this point, but Lucas somehow got separated from the other spelunkers. The next thing he knew, he was locked in the cave for three days. The president of the caving club says, we have a series of rigorous protocols that are supposed to prevent situations like this, but they are only effective if followed, to which he adds, we had a failure in leadership. Meanwhile, back in the cave, Lucas Kavar couldn't get a cell signal and soon realized he would be there for a while. As soon as I noticed droplets of water on the cave wall, it seemed pretty obvious what I had to do. So he licked the walls when he got thirsty, and although it didn't ease his hunger or give him nourishment, he ate the crumbs he could find in some otherwise empty cliff bar wrappers. The sun rose and set three times, and Lucas had to worry about how this would end. And then, the light at the end of the tunnel, a bright, battery-powered light. His parents were rightly concerned when he hadn't answered their text, as usual. They had filed a missing persons report. The guy who locked me in the cave was the same guy who unlocked the cave and got me out, says Lucas. That guy is also an emergency medical technician who checked Lucas's vitals. Other spelunkers showed up, too, with warm clothing and food. The caving club's president was asked how Lucas got left behind with those rigorous protocols. He says that is, quote, a sensitive legal matter. The British spy comedy Kingsman was the favorite movie in North America over the weekend with a $39 million take. It was second with $30 million. It is now the most money-making horror film of all time, replacing The Exorcist, which dates back 42 years. Expect clown costumes this Halloween, since It is about a clown that eats children. But don't write off The Exorcist. That movie's record was broken only if you don't factor ticket price inflation over those 42 years. But on track to make $313 million, It could still top The Exorcist. And It has a high profit margin, costing only $35 million to make while taking in $236 million just in the U.S. just in two weeks. That's why Warner Brothers has just announced there will be a sequel in plenty of time for Halloween 2019. Puerto Rico has been set back 20 or 30 years by Hurricane Maria. The power will be out for months. Thousands of those 3.5 million Americans have taken refuge here on the mainland. The mainland was spared that sort of chaos, but many here in South Florida are still in crisis and will be for a bit longer. Still no electricity two weeks after Irma. And then this bright pink spray paint on plywood sign went up in a neighborhood in Fort Myers. It read, Hot single female seeks sexy lineman to electrify her life. And then she posted a picture of the sign on Facebook. Quoting Kinsey, 
I just thought maybe if a lineman got to my neighborhood, they'll laugh and hook me up first. And that Facebook post got Kinsey on a local radio station's morning show. Some lineman from Pennsylvania down for the post-storm repairs heard that radio show and went to Kinsey's house to pose for a picture with the sign, which they also posted on Facebook. And they added to their post that her lines had been repaired and were ready to be powered up again. But it wasn't the hot pink paint or the hot single female or the word sexy that got them to Kinsey's house. They had heard that morning on the radio that Kinsey needed the air conditioning to avoid complications from her double kidney transplant. There are no oceans in or near Missouri, but there is a town there called Ocean Springs, and that is where somebody decided to pay it forward at the only McDonald's in town. It was the morning rush, such as it is in Ocean Springs, Missouri. Now, it's often the case that after one person pays for the customer behind them, that person will do the same, and this can go on five, ten times in a row. About the 20th car is when everybody was like, oh my goodness, here it goes, says the manager, adding, and it just went. The kids got really excited. It leaked into our crew and went, it did, 125 times in a row before the line of cars was gone. 125 people experiencing kindness passed along that kindness one after another. And it started with one person. Kid, your future may be in weed. You may now get a degree in medical marijuana. Northern Michigan University has become the first in the U.S. to offer a degree in the chemistry of medicinal plants. All you need to do is master chemistry and biology, and the research can begin. An associate chemistry professor says the time is right for the curriculum because the field is, to use his word, exploding. We will be focusing, he says, on cannabis chemistry in our classes. What can you do with your medical marijuana degree? According to the professor, herbal supplements, food chemistry, and fermentation science. After all its notorious years, weed has become part of the present and the future. The Highway Patrol in North Carolina has issued a citation to a semi-driver for not securing his load. But this wasn't your average case, and no punishment may be enough. The truck was carrying 17 pallets of vodka, and because they were not properly secured, they slid across the truck and caused it to flip over and skid to a stop on its side. 40,000 pounds of vodka bottles were destroyed. We don't cry over spilled milk. Vodka, however, we get misty. And finally, in Arkansas, the Cullman County Sheriff's Office is on the lookout for two men in a red or maroon GMC Envoy. They were last seen down at Sportsman Lake Park, walking out of the public restrooms there with those gigantic rolls of toilet paper and their equally large dispensers. Those dispensers are 100 bucks each, and the county would like them back. Getting back the unused toilet paper would also be nice. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening, and thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.